Good afternoon and welcome to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% for May 28th, 2022. And you've been listening to our intro music, Leonard Cohen's Iconic Democracy, which we keep using all the time just because it's so appropriate. You're listening by way of KFGM 105.5. Missoula Community Radio and live streaming on 1055KFGM, no punctuation, .org, and now on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash 
VOP hyphen Montana or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. I am Jim, the sound man, and I'm joined by Sue Kirchmeyer and Mark Anderlich. Hi. Hi. So we will soon be broadcasting from the new public library in the Missoula Valley of Montana, but we're recording this show from the comfort of our own homes, which are all located in the ancestral heartland of Salish and Kootenai people. And despite all of our deepest wishes, the pandemic is not quite over yet. We need to hang in there still by doing your part, by wearing masks when you're inside in public, uh, by frequent washing of your hands. The show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. We hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio. And we want to give old Mick a shout out. Hey, Mick. Hope you're doing well, Mick. We certainly could use a qualified person behind the microphone. <laughs> Make yourself visible anytime soon. We want to see you on the radio again. So it's word of the week time. And we had like eight syllables or six syllables last week. So we're going to, so this is more lean and mean. Second amendment. And I take it. This is in light of the horrible massacre of school children and their teacher in Uvalde, Texas. It is, Jim. Um, this horrible event is all too common in the United States. It is something else that makes us ex- exceptional. Oh, uh, there's that American exceptionalism again. There is tremendous controversy over the meaning of the Second Amendment, and the Supreme Court has seemingly taken one side in the debate that of unrestricted personal ownership of guns. Proponents of this view call for a doubling down of more guns, more guns in school, on the street, more armed police, in response to the latest school massacre. Indeed, as if more guns will somehow magically reduce gun violence. But there are valid reasons why people support this view of the Second Amendment. Fears of an authoritarian government, concerns over personal safety, and a certain understanding of the meaning and purpose of the U.S. Constitution. All of these reasons are valid, and we need to uh, acknowledge them as valid, but they need to be addressed in any work towards substantially reducing gun deaths and gun violence, which I think everyone shares that view. Uh, We need to bridge the divide among the 99% in this country on this issue if we are to move to a better place. Absolutely. And, and it, it's so clear that it's our gun policy that's making the United States an outlier, not our frontier heritage or our Wild West traditions. It's just that there are more guns than there are people in this country. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's got a long history, for sure. Yes. So are you saying that the gun issue is a divide and conquer wedge among the 99%, Mark? Oh, absolutely. I think there's no question about it. Nobody wants to see school massacres, but the oligarchs really don't care if it does happen or not. 
just as long as it divides the 99% and prevents us from directing our anger at them. Political leaders from both parties and the corporate media play politics on this, and nothing seems to get done. A first step is to acknowledge that both sides have, it, have its valid points, and that agreement on some of these key points must be explicitly reached. The demonization of either side must be opposed and shut down, in my view. And that's a view that is hard to accept by many people. I agree on, on both sides of the uh, equation there. Um, but since the show is about providing education about our world that the 99% may need to successfully struggle against the neoliberals and the oligarchs, we will attempt to bring some light to one of these aspects of an admittedly complicated subject, the origins of the Second Amendment. And we will try to illuminate this topic by discussing a pivotal event in the development of the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights, called the Shays Rebellion. According to HistoryandCharts.com, among many other sources, quote, in the aftermath of the American Revolution, the U new United States faced many challenges and difficulties. Of all the difficulties, Shays Rebellion was perhaps the most important. The Articles of Confederation was the first form of organized federal government the United States employed following independence. The Articles made the federal government extremely weak and left most power to the states. Nothing highlighted this weakness better than the outbreak of Shays' Rebellion and the powerlessness of the federal government to respond and react. Shays' Rebellion was an organized rebellion of Western Massachusetts farmers and countrymen against the state of Massachusetts in 1786 to 1787. These farmers rebelled against the unjust collection of excessive taxes and seizure of property when taxes went uncollected. Many of the rebels were disgruntled former Continental Army soldiers who went unpaid during the revolution. These poor farmers were now being forced to give up their lands when they could not pay the high taxes imposed on them by the state governments. After peaceful attempts to come to a resolution were ignored by state leaders, primarily from the eastern coastal area, the protesters took more forceful means to protect their interests. Courthouses and state buildings were surrounded, and government officials prevented from following through with evictions and arrests. The federal government was aware of the rebellion and the possibility of an attempt to take weapons from the federal armory in Springfield, Massachusetts. It soon found itself powerless to take any action given that it could not raise an army of its own nor levy taxes. Shays' rebellion was ultimately put down by a militia privately funded by wealthy Massachusetts citizens. Despite this, the rebellion highlighted just how weak the federal government was and convinced the founding fathers a new, stronger federal government was needed, end quote. Yeah, this is an overshoot. Uh, overshoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, way overshoot. <laughs> uh, yeah, Mr. Freud is snickering somewhere <laughs> and saying, Jim's unconscious, it'll get him into trouble. Um, this is an overview. Are you going to dig deeper, Mark? Yeah, you bet. Now, please have a little patience because this is a really <laughs> fascinating story and the details matter here. Um, so <clears throat> for... Uh, First, though, as regular listeners know, we like to use Wikipedia as a reference for our words of the week. Our fearless leader and radio station manager, JVD, has suggested that we include a note about Wikipedia. Here is that note. 
Each entry is written by the public with citations provided for sources of information. So the accuracy of each entry may vary somewhat. That said, according to our collective wisdom at Wikipedia, quote, the economy during the American Revolutionary War was largely subsistence agriculture in the rural parts of New England, particularly in the hill towns of central and western Massachusetts. Some residents in these areas had few assets beyond their land, and they bartered with one another for goods and services. In lean times, farmers might obtain goods on credit from suppliers in local market towns who would be paid when times were better. In contrast, there was a market economy in the more economically developed coastal areas of Massachusetts Bay and in the fertile Connecticut River Valley, driven by the activities of wholesale merchants dealing with Europe and the West Indies, which uh, as a side note, includes the trafficking of humans known as the slave trade. The state government was dominated by this merchant class. When the Revolutionary War ended in 1783, Massachusetts merchants European business partners refused to extend lines of credit to them and insisted that they pay for goods with hard currency, that is gold or silver, mm -hmm. or British pounds, um, oh, yeah. despite the countrywide shortage of such currency. Merchants began to demand the same from their local business partners, including those operating in the market towns in the state's interior. Many of these merchants passed on this demand to their customers, Although Governor John Hancock did not impose, and that John, that same very same Jan, Jan, John Hancock of the handwriting uh, signature mm -hmm. fame, um, although John, Governor John Hancock did not impose hard currency demands on poorer borrowers and refused to actively prosecute the collection of delinquent taxes, the rural farming population was generally unable to meet the demands of merchants and the civil authorities and some began to lose their land and other possessions when they were unable to fulfill their debt and tax obligations. This led to strong resentments against tax collectors and the courts, where creditors obtained judgments against debtors and where tax collectors obtained judgments authorizing property seizures. Veterans had received, this is Revolutionary War veterans, mm -hmm. had received little pay during the war and faced added difficulty collecting payments owed to them from the state or the Congress of the Confederation. Some soldiers began to organize protests against these oppressive economic conditions. In 1780, Daniel Shays resigned from the army unpaid and went home to find himself in court for non-payment of debts. He soon realized that he was not alone in his inability to pay his debts and began organizing for debt relief." End quote. Ooh, so there was a strong class element in the Shays Revolution. Oh, Rebellion. Yeah, well, and Even that was. Too, at the, I apologize. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, Mr. Freud is uh, yeah. really um, right. going to take notes on you, Jim, I think. Um, so, um, yeah, absolutely. Class, uh, uh, class conflict is at the core. And it is this class conflict that has been whitewashed out of history. We are taught about the Revolutionary War and our U.S. Constitution. Mm -hmm. Class conflict plays out at almost every turn in this story. Yeah, when we ignore class, the conflict between the 99% and the 1%, we can fall prey to the arguments of the 1% protecting their own. Absolutely, Jim. Again, um, this is from Wikipedia. 
most rural communities attempted to use the legislative process to gain relief in, in Massachusetts. Petitions and proposals were repeatedly submitted to the state legislature to issue paper currency, which would depreciate the currency, the, the hard currency, and make it possible to pay a high value debt with lower value paper. The merchants were opposed to the idea, including James Bowdoin, since they stood to lose from such measures and the proposals were repeatedly rejected." End quote. No. Oh yeah, of course. So we come back to what money is and how it affects all of our lives. Yeah. Uh, Common theme on this show. It is a theme on this show. The huge debt the states carried from fighting the Revolutionary War, owed to France among others, could only be be paid back with gold or silver or sometimes with British pounds, which is kind of ironic, right? Um, Most Americans had little to no gold or silver to pay the merchants or the state governments. The legislative calls for a paper currency issued by the state by the working class would have been the correct demand for the situation, but the methods of the modern central banks of today to maintain value of the paper fiat currency instead of the gold standard were apparently not on the table. We have covered fiat money in the past in past shows under modern monetary theory or MMT. At any rate, the wealthy in Massachusetts wanted to extract every penny in gold or silver owed to them in the debts of the bulk of the citizens. Every opportunity in Massachusetts to peacefully resolve this, the terrible economic conditions of the people were met with indifference and eventually repression. So the conflict naturally escalated. And here again is uh, Wikipedia. Uh, Governor Hancock resigned in early uh, 1785, citing health reasons, though some suggested that he was anticipating trouble. Bodoin had repeatedly lost to Hancock in earlier elections for governor, but he was elected governor that year and matters then became more severe. He stepped up civil actions to collect back taxes, and the legislature exacerbated the situation by levying an additional property tax to raise funds for the state's portion of foreign debt payments. Even comparatively conservative commentators such as John Adams observed that these levies were, quote, heavier than the people could bear, unquote. Protests in rural Massachusetts turned into direct action in August 1786 after the state legislature adjourned without considering the many petitions that had been sent to Boston. On August 29th, a well-organized force of protesters formed in Northampton, Massachusetts, and successfully prevented the county court from sitting. The leaders of this force proclaimed that they were seeking relief from the burdensome judicial processes that were depriving the people of their land and possessions. They called themselves regulators, a reference to the regulator movement of North Carolina, which sought to reform corrupt practices in the late 1760s. Governor Bodoin issued a proclamation on September 2nd denouncing such mob action, but he took no military measures beyond planning a militia response to future actions. The court was then shut down in Worcester, Massachusetts by similar action on September 5, but the county militia refused to turn out as it was composed mainly of men sympathetic to the protesters. Governors of the neighboring states acted decisively, calling out the militia to hunt down the ringleaders in their own states after the first such protests. 
Matters were resolved without violence in Rhode Island because the country party gained control of the legislature in 1786 and enacted measures forcing its merchants to trade debt instruments for devalued currency. Boston's merchants were concerned by this, especially Bodoin, who held more than 3,000 British pounds in Massachusetts notes, which was a lot of money at the time, right? <laughs> um, you know, it's probably like millions of dollars now. Um, mm -hmm. Daniel Shays had participated in the Northampton action and began to take a more active role in the uprising in November, though he firmly denied that he was one of the leaders. The Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts indicted 11 leaders of the rebellion as disorderly, riotous, and seditious persons. The court was scheduled to meet next in Springfield, Massachusetts on September 26th, and Shays organized an attempt to shut it down in Northampton, while Luke Day organized an attempt in Springfield. They were anticipated by William Shepard, the local <clears throat> militia commander, who began gathering government-supporting militia the Saturday before the court was to sit. Annie had 300 men protecting the Springfield courthouse by opening time. Jays and Day were able to recruit a similar number, but chose only to demonstrate, exercising their troops outside of Shepard's lines rather than attempting to seize the building. The judges first postponed hearings and then adjourned on the 28th without hearing any cases. Therefore, you know, Shay and Day were were able were successful in organizing uh, shutting it down. Um, <clears throat> But Shepard withdrew his forces, which had grown to some 800 men, to the Springfield Armory, which was rumored to be the target of the protesters. Protests were also successful in shutting down courts in Great Barrington, Concord, and Taunton, Massachusetts, in September and October. James Warren wrote to John Adams on October 22nd, quote, We are now in a state of anarchy and confusion bordering on civil war, end quote. Courts were able to meet in the larger towns and cities, but they required protection of the militia, which Bodoin called out for the purpose. Governor Bodoin commanded the legislature to, quote, vindicate the insulted dignity of government, end quote. Samuel Adams claimed that foreigners, British emissaries, were instigating treason among citizens. Adams helped draw up a riot act and a resolution suspending habeas corpus so the authorities could legally keep people in jail without trial. Adams proposed a new legal distinction that rebellion in a republic should be punished by execution. The legislature also moved to make some concessions on the matter, on matters that upset farmers, saying that certain old taxes could now be paid in goods instead of hard currency. These measures were followed by one prohibiting speech critical of the government and offering pardons to protesters willing to take an oath of allegiance. These legislative actions were unsuccessful in quelling the protests, and the suspension of habeas corpus alarmed many, end quote. Hmm. So revolutionary war heroes like Sam Adams with a brewing company named Bertram, I'm okay with that, sought to protect the wealthy merchant class at the expense of the working class by emulating the British tyranny. Absolutely, because sedition was punishable by execution as well. So um, Sam Adams's um, theory was that, well, it's okay to revolt against monarchy. It's not okay to revolt against the Republic. Um, so because theoretically, this is, this is the government of the people. But Massachusetts government was certainly not 
representing the the uh, wishes and the needs of uh, much of its uh, working class, for sure. Um, again, from Wikipedia, <clears throat> the federal government has been unable to recruit soldiers for the army because of a lack of funding. So Massachusetts leaders decided to act independently. On January 4th, 1787, Governor Bowdoin purposed creating a privately funded militia army. Former Continental Army General Benjamin Lincoln solicited funds and raised more than 6,000 British pounds from more than 125 merchants by the end of January. So basically this was a mercenary force. Um, the 6,000 pounds is a lot of money then. 6,000 pounds, yep. Uh, the 3,000 militiamen who were recruited into this army were almost entirely from the Eastern counties of Massachusetts. And they marched to Worcester on January 19th. Um, this militia funded by the wealthy merchants eventually crushed the rebellion by February, 1787. By then six rebellion participants were killed. Dozens were wounded. Many were arrested, including Shays with the state hanging two of them. Shays was later pardoned, but was vilified in the press. And he died in poverty in 1825 in New York, in New York state. Mm. Um, three state militiamen were killed by the end and dozens were wounded. So 64 million pound question. So <laughs> the impact of Shays rebellion on the formation of the US Constitution. Well, I'm glad you asked that, Jim. <laughs> uh, um, I'm here to make you happy, Mark. <laughs> good. Um, well, it was likely a tipping point in favor of the Federalists in their argument for a strong central government and in the demise of the Articles of Confederation. George Washington, for one, wrote, <clears throat> if three years ago, at the end of the American Revolution, any person had told me that at this day I should see such a formidable rebellion against the laws and constitutions of our own making as now appears, I should have thought him a bedlamite, a fit subject for a madhouse, end quote. Hmm. Uh, Washington also wrote to Henry Knox on February 3rd, 1787, adding that if the government shrinks, quote, it shrinks or is unable to enforce its laws, anarchy and confusion must prevail, end quote. Washington's alarm about Shays' rebellion was a key factor in his decision to take part in and preside over the Constitutional Convention which was uh, supposed to offer revisions to the Articles of Confederation, but instead threw out the old structure entirely and replaced it with the US Constitution, which shifted national sovereignty from the 13 states to, quote, we the people, and dramatically enhanced the power of the central government. <clears throat> Again, from Wikipedia, at the time of the rebellion, the weaknesses of the federal government as constituted under the Articles of Confederation were apparent to many. A vigorous debate was going on throughout the states on the need for a stronger central government, with Federalists arguing for the idea and Anti-Federalists opposing them. Historical opinion is divided on what sort of role the rebellion played in the formation and later ratification of the U.S. Constitution, although most scholars agreed that it played some role, at least temporarily drawing some Anti-Federalists to the strong government side. By early 1785, many influential merchants and political leaders were already agreed that a stronger central government was needed. Note, influential merchants, it was the elite, okay, that wanted, mm -hmm. <laughs> were having this discussion. Um, 
And uh, uh, that they, uh, let's see, in early 1787, influential Federalist John Jay wrote that the rural disturbances and the inability of the central government to fund troops in response made, quote, the inefficiency of the federal government more and more manifest, end quote. Henry Knox has observed that the uprising in Massachusetts clearly influenced local leaders, mostly the merchant class, who had previously opposed a strong federal government. Historian David Zetmary writes that the timing of the rebellion, quote, convinced the elites of sovereign states that the proposed gathering at Philadelphia must take place, end quote. Some states delayed choosing delegates to the proposed convention, including Massachusetts, in part because it resembled the, the quote, extra legal conventions organized by the protesters before the rebellion became violent. The convention that met in Philadelphia was dominated by strong government advocates. Delegate Oliver Ellsworth of Connecticut argued that because the people could not be trusted, as exemplified by the Shays Rebellion, the members of the Federal House of Representatives should be chosen by state legislatures, not by popular vote. The example of Shays Rebellion may have also influenced, in addition, the language to the Constitution concerning the ability of states to manage domestic violence and their ability to demand the return of individuals from other states for trial. The rebellion also played a role in the discussion of a number of chief executives the United States would have going forward. While mindful of tyranny, delegates of the Constitutional Convention thought that the single executive would be more effective in responding to national disturbances. Federalists cited the rebellion as an example of the Confederation government's weaknesses, end quote. And so how did this affect the writing of the Second Amendment, our number and word of the week? Well, it, it seems sensible that if the Shays Rebellion drove George Washington out of retirement, then the issues that it raised, he felt, were profound for the future of the new nation. And what were those issues? Primarily the, primarily the lack of an armed force to suppress rebellions that threatened the elites, including Washington. Author Robert Perry summarizes this in an article in Alternate published on December 21st, 2012. And this is Perry, Perry's summary, sum, summation. Um, the Second Amendment dealt with concerns about security and the need for trained militias to ensure what the Constitution called domestic tranquility. There was also hesitancy among many framers about the costs and risks from a large standing army thus making militias composed of citizens an attractive alternative. <laughs> mm -hmm. A little on the cheap a little, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, uh... <laughs> it's, it's, I, I could totally believe that. So this, the Second Amendment read, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, end quote. But contrary to some current right-wing fantasies about the framers wanting to encourage popular uprisings over grievances, the language of the amendment is clearly aimed at maintaining order within the country. That point was driven home by the actions of the second Congress amid another uprising which erupted in 1791 in Western Pennsylvania. This anti-tax revolt known as the Whiskey Rebellion prompted Congress in 1792 to expand on the idea of a well-regulated militia by passing the Militia Acts, which required all military-age white males 
to obtain their own muskets and equipment for service in militias. In 1794, President Washington, who was determined to demonstrate the young government's resolve, led a combined force of state militias against the Whiskey Rebels. Their mm -hmm. revolt soon collapsed and order was restored, demonstrating how the Second Amendment helped serve the government in maintaining security, as the amendment says. Beyond this clear historical record that the framers' intent was to create security for the new republic, not promote armed rebellions, there is also the simple logic that the framers represented the young nation's aristocracy. Many, like Washington, owned vast tracts of land. They recognized that a strong central government and domestic tranquility were in their economic interests. So it would be counterintuitive as well as anti-historical to believe that Madison and Washington wanted to arm the population so the discontented could resist the constitutionally elected government. In reality, the framers wanted to arm the people, at least the white males, so uprisings, whether economic clashes like Shays' Rebellion, anti-tax protests like the Whiskey Rebellion, mm -hmm. attacks by Native Americans, or slave revolts could be repulsed, end quote. How about it, Sue? What do you think? Well, like there's a lot oh, of points at which to draw similarities or elements into today. I'll be really interested in, in the pieces that you all are thinking about, too. Mm -hmm. When you think about taxation, when you think about people returning from our endless wars and running into their local economies that have been devastated with jobs shifting over, shifted overseas by the corporations and, and coming back to no jobs in rural areas being, um, well, or bad jobs, growing crops mm -hmm. of soldiers and then having right. no way to return to um, a, a, a living economy. Um, I mean, there's the 2008, how do we keep our homes when they want to, everybody wants to, um, what do you call it, end the mortgages? Foreclose. Foreclose mm -hmm. the mortgages. Yes. I mean, you just wanted to be out there just like they were in the Depression, just saying, no, go away. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, there's a lot of, um, it'll be fun, interesting to draw those, you know, what brings the, you know, fodder for divide and conquer, meaning of the same kinds of issues that we see for people who are then finding, well, progressivism, what do you say? No, populism, right? It can either go far right or far left. And how do we bring those together? Well, Soundman Jim yes. thinks that um, the most significant cause of four mentioned is slave revolts. And you'll notice that the word white gets used twice. And as a guy that grew up south of the Mason-Dixon line, um, the the approved alternate explanation for the Second Amendment is oh. that, that the puritanical New Englanders um, would be reluctant to send federal troops so that plantation owners could could you know quell slave revolts like what were going on in Haiti at that time. So mm -hmm. let all the white boys have shooting irons. And then they could act immediately instead of, you know, waiting for federal troops to show up if mm. they ever did. And uh, um, 
there, there's a wonderful new book that I'm going to have to check out when we're in, when we have a studio at the library by Brian DeLay in uh, Berkeley called Shoot the State, where he, he takes work, he's scholarship he's already done and adds even more. Hmm. So that's what I'm going with. They hmm. had to have it, you know, they were very concerned that um, the Deep South could turn into Haiti and uh, too many people of the wrong color having too many guns and they weren't going to let that happen. So yeah, to protect the new constitutional order and the wealthy elites. Right. And th order, this is, this seems is seems like the, a reasonable conclusion. Yeah. The, um, the, uh, uh, the, the issues, the economic issues, I mean, slavery in many ways was, was completely an economic institution, right? Oh God. And, yes. And, and racism is really, um, you know, was created, it, it, it's a creation, right? It's not a natural and notable thing. Mm -hmm. It was created to justify slavery. Um, and we're dealing with the effects of that today. We're also dealing with the effects of, you know, the, the, uh, the 99% versus the 1%. That's not mm -hmm. a resolved thing either. And so um, there's some really important elements that the Shays Rebellion, you, you know, points to unresolved issues that continue today and continue to uh, bedevil us as a, as a country. Um, so, yeah, and I, I think that it, you know, the new constitution, I think, um, and it continues to this day, is uh, really, um, I think it's reasonable to say that it was uh, created in order to, in part, um, despite noble ideals, right, that mm. really to protect, uh, it ends up protecting the elite class, the, the wealthy, the merchants at that time, right? Mm -hmm. they, they weren't really capitalists yet, but uh, the merchants at that time um, and, uh, and the upstanding people, most of the people at the Continental Congress, right, the, the Constitutional Congress, uh, the, they came from the same cut of cloth and... Mm -hmm. Uh, wrote a document that was really very much uh, in support of keeping, allowing them to keep their wealth and and uh, and 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 fight off any kind of opposition to that. So, um, in fact, if you look at the state constitutions before the new constitution, say Massachusetts in 1780, they read exactly in this way. Mm -hmm. So in Massachusetts, it says under their Declaration of Rights, Chapter 1, Article 17, the people have a right to keep and to bear arms for the common defense. And as in time of peace, armies are dangerous to liberty. They ought not to be maintained without the consent of the legislature. And the military power shall always be held in an exact subordination to the civil authority and be governed by it. So in, in that, it's, it's rather clear. It's clearer than in the U.S. Constitution that yes. uh, in, in terms of the common defense, this was not an individual right to bear arms, uh, subtract, you know, uh, distinct or uh, abstracted from, uh, alienated from, mm -hmm. if you will, the idea of having an organized militia on the state level. Yeah. Um, so ironically, uh, Massachusetts where this excerpt comes from, 
um, had a very big role in slavery <laughs> it, by being the shipbuilder. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if there's a connection between the Massachusetts uh, Constitution and the one that says there will be no standing army, but nope, nope, nope. You got to make sure we got a Navy. <laughs> so people had an individual right to bear arms only in relation to an organized militia employed for the common defense. Exactly. And others follow along the same line. So, for example, Virginia adopted this language in 1776, right at the start of the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. They also called it a Declaration of Rights. It's kind of their Bill of Rights, too. Section 13, that a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state. That standing armies in time of peace should be avoided as dangerous to liberty. And that in all cases, the military should be under strict subordination to and governed by the civil power. Yeah. End quote. You know, that, that is even more clear. It certainly <laughs> that, is. And they wrote that in 1776 when, correct. when the yep. whole party got started. Yeah. And, and this language is all very similar to the Second Amendment. I mean, they, it, mm -hmm. it really became the foundation for the, the, the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, so uh, how, did, um, how did we end up with the Second Amendment meaning for some the right to bear arms against a tyrannical government? Well, that's a long story. And, you know, I did in my reading, I did find that people, everyone assumed, you know, that it was a right to people to be to, for to self-defense that there was nothing, you know, individual self-defense. There was nothing in that, that, that was taken otherwise. Right. But, um, but to, uh, but the, that the second amendment is our bulwark against a tyrannical government is uh, a real stretch um, because if if that was the intent of the founding fathers, it, it has failed miserably. For one, mm -hmm. the U.S. now has history's largest and most powerful standing army, which is one thing that they feared most of all. And the consequences of this has been to suppress freedom here and abroad and mightily contributes to the poverty and immiseration here and around the world. As Republican Dwight D. Eisenhower said in 1953, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. The wor this world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. The cost of one modern heavy bomber, and this is 1953, mm -hmm. is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 population. It is two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It is some 50 miles of concrete pavement. We pay for a single fighter plane with a half a million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that it could that could have housed more than 8,000 people. This is, I repeat, the best way of life to be found on the road the world has been taking. This is not a way of life at all in any true sense. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. Is there no other way the world may live? 
And gee, that that guy from Abilene had it figured out. It's hard to believe there was an R in front of his name. (laughs) And a general. Yeah, general. Yeah, indeed. (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Sue. That's a good point. So, but it is legitimized in the service of the U.S. World Empire, and that's what the stand our giant standing army has been uh, definitely legitimized for which mostly serves the interests of our current day elites, right? Um, also, grifters and political opportunists, principally in the National Rifle Association, oh, Mark. Have, <laughs> have stepped into the breach of an unresponsive federal government to the needs and wishes of the majority of citizens. So let's face it, you know, since the advent of neoliberalism, um, you know, ordinary people's concerns are really not the concerns of our federal government. And, uh, and so... Of course, and I guess people... I would put, uh, let me put in there that in a lot of ways, um, I wouldn't say so much that the Rifle Association is responding to the needs and wishes of a majority of the citizens as much as it is crafting and creating the demand. Well, well no. So, so let me let me let me finish. Up. Let me finish my thought because they're oh, not no. they're not addressing the demands. Of the, they're addressing the demands of people who are frustrated by an unresponsive federal government. Okay, and but they're doing it in a in in their grifting way, right? So, um, and and really, um, uh, they recklessly claim that an armed citizenry is the last hope for a free people. Okay. Uh, while ignoring the fact that the federal government holds an overwhelming monopoly on armed might. It's foolish to believe that loosely organized armed citizens can ever defeat such an overwhelming and highly organized and trained armed force. So they're they're not meeting any needs except for Mm -hmm. people's frustration. They're they're moving into the breach of the frustration of people who feel like the government's not responding to their, their needs. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how do we address then people's legitimate fears about a tyrannical government? Well, and I'll I'll preface this by saying that, um, you know, there's not easy sort of facile answers like arming everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. Th- th- that, <laughs> Unless that, you're at the NRA. And yeah, well, and, 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 and Wesson and, and Remington and Colt. Yeah. And, you know, the arms manufacturers love that they're making lots of money. And so there's that's that's part of the grift. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, but it's it's essentially a, a, a futile action. But what it re- what it takes the place of is hard work. Uh, but in, in hard organizing work, stuff that we talk about all the time on this show, right? Um, and, and, but also there's, um, I think there's a couple of things that people should uh, maybe uh, think about in, in, in this. So first of all, we should shed our romantic notions of the Second Amendment as it was written to more effectively suppress rebellions than to fight tyranny. I think let's mm-hmm. just do away with that kind of illusion. Um, but second, even if the Second Amendment's purpose was exactly that, it does us little good now as the standing army, including the National Guard and the police, would crush any armed resistance easily. Third is to recognize that all power is conditioned upon the consent and cooperation of those subject to it. 
And this is, this is where our hope really lies, I think. For example, unorganized workers are utterly, utterly dependent on the goodwill of their employer. If they get organized and walk out on strike, for example, the power shifts over to the workers as they withhold their labor from the employer who can't make a profit if workers are not willing to be forced to work. Other examples of this abound in history, which tells us that contrary to Mao Zedong, power does not grow out of the barrel of a gun. As Gene Sharp writes in his seminal book, The Politics of Nonviolent Action, quote, the exercise of power depends on the consent of the ruled who, by withdrawing that consent, such as through a strike or mass civil disobedience, mm -hmm. can control and even destroy the power of their opponent, end quote. Sharp goes on to describe 198 methods of nonviolently withdrawing consent and gives historical examples of each. For me, this is a far more promising way to fight the oligarchy than the romantic fantasy of an armed citizenry. Right now, the 99% is just killing each other and engaging in fruitless debates that only further divide us. Here, here, that you, you see so many memes and cartoons that show the Monopoly man or Daddy Warbucks, you know, snickering as uh, the frustrated yet powerless of our taught ways to see differences among the ranks and to compete and to combat each other instead of combating their their shared enemy. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yeah, you don't see a lot of of um, you know violent violent games that have um, the combatants going after. I don't know, people in suits. Or <laughs> it's, it's just the bad guys that yeah, you, you go oh, yeah. after, right? And they're always, yeah. It's, Whoever defines that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the inter, what do you call it? Well, Internecine? I was going to say internecine, but I wasn't sure what it meant, so I thought I better stop. But, you know, <laughs> this is community radio. Because well, I'm sorry. It can have, you know, we the people can determine whatever the meaning is that suits our needs. <laughs> oh, I'll go to Wikipedia and define right. it next. Yeah. We don't have a style guide. At, um, yeah. 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 This circular firing squad that we're in the middle of right now is. Yeah, it's 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 not helping in, you know, demonizing supporters of the second. I mean, I think this is kind of where it comes back to. Right. Is that. Um, people who support the current understanding of the Second Amendment, I, I, I think they're, you know, I, I think it's done out of genuine concern, right? That, that there are real concerns. And, and I think the only way we get to figuring out how to deal with this, like, incredible gun violence, and by the way, most most people killed by guns aren't in these spectacular mass shootings, right? It's it's one or two people right. every single day, every mm -hmm. in practically every town in this country all the time, um, through like you know uh, you know through accident, through you know anger, through uh, you know retaliation, through drug deals gone bad, through mm -hmm. I mean it's just there's just it's just too easy to um, it's too easy to 
take somebody's life this way. Um, and, but just having, you know, and, and I'm, I'm for, you know, regulating guns, right? I think that's sensible, but that alone isn't going to take care of the problem because it doesn't address this idea that um, how do we deal with a, a, a government taken over by the oligarchs? I mean, we don't have a democracy, so how is it we, we get power back? And um, I don't think guns are the, are the, are the answer for that, right? They're, they're proving to be, we're just killing each other, right? And, and I think that's- I think right. that's, yeah. To me, that's the name of the game. As far as, I mean, having, I just read um, Gunfight. It's by Ryan Buss, B-U-S-S-E. You mm -hmm. all are probably familiar. Maybe yeah. you're- He's, he's from Montana. He lives in Montana. He lives in Kalispell. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, yeah. that makes it's sense. Really yeah. Of course, he's a-, he's a kind of a whistleblower he's somebody who's been an insider in the gun industry in a and i guess i could say i want to don't want to shorten your take up too much time but no no go ahead okay so the background is that he was in um idealistic guy from the midwest who loved guns grew up on a ranch or farm or whatever they have anyhow and so he thought guns um could be for well, hunting and for conservation was important to him. And so he got rose in the ranks because he created this huge network of distributors um, for the guns that he thought would not be found in the hands of criminals or whatever, this, this, this kind of thing. And, um, and of course that he rose in the ranks, as I said, and he then was instrumental in the take no prisoners approach um, where no one could break ranks at all with uh, do not tamper at all with gun laws um, and drove Smith and Wesson to its knees um, when they were willing to um, compromise at one point with regulators and got the CEO out of his job, destroyed Wesson, no distributor. They were totally, uh, what do you call it, boycotted and um, anyhow, crashed. And he feels that that's what... Um, that that he helped to hone that tool that the NRA used to just um, just alert all their trolls around the country and to really create where I mean I don't I don't really think the NRA is worried about government because they are real tight with the Council on National Policy all the people who are throwing money at who whatever well the Republican Party in this case but you know any politician. Um, I, th you know, their goal is just is more divide and conquer, as you're saying. I, I think they're not worried about the government. They're worried about each other, meaning us, um, anyone who wants to control, you know, anything that's not big Republican stuff and, and racism and all that stuff. That's, that's where they're going. I don't think they're going against the government at this point because I think they own it. Yeah, I I remember, well, they think they own it, maybe, because <laughs> well, they don't. Remember, they don't really. I don't think. But go ahead, Jim. Remember two or three years ago, and some wonderful articles in the New York Times, I think, or it could have been Wapo, uncovering the NRA is a giant pyramid scheme, that, and that the the funding base and the behavior of the people in charge was abysmally corrupt. And I don't hear anybody talking about that any longer. Yeah, I know. I know. People yeah. are still getting killed. Guns are still yeah. being made. Why? You know, the rascals were outed by some excellent journalism. 
how come it didn't have enough momentum to deal with it? Well, I, I think it's, I, I think this could be seen as evidence, right? That um, the oligarchs really don't care. They, they really oh. don't care about the shooting in Texas. I mean, maybe personally they feel bad or something, but they don't feel compelled enough and they don't really care about the NRA except in the fact that it, 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 the NRA divides the 99%. And so if, in any mm -hmm. way you can divide the 99%, whether it's racism or guns or abortion or Sounds whatever, good. that Sounds means right. we're not aiming at them. No, excellent point. Uh, create phony issues to entertain and charm the populace and don't give them enough of an understanding of what really matters mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, schools that are robbed of their capacity to inform and instruct. Right. And they'll and, take the, con they, they systematically work the talking points, again, mm -hmm. not to go after guns. I mean, the first words you heard, well, which is I guess, well, I guess, no, this is about Buffalo was um, white supremacy. And then the next, so if you can, that was like all that there was out there. There's nothing about guns for Buffalo. It was all about white supremacy mm -hmm. and anything that lets them skirt the issue of guns, they're all for. But at oh. the same time, every time there is a tragedy, then there's going to be talk about guns control. And then that jumps up the, the, the purchasing of guns because they're worried about somebody's going to have some regulations and then right, and the right. stocks go up and you see that um, there was just an article on the NPRs. What is it? The, the program about uh, economics, the little one that's in the morning. I can't remember. Oh, on national public radio. The gun stocks are up. Oh, and okay. Of course. Yeah, so you just it, count on it. it right. And so Kai, Kai Rizdahl's show of market watch market, or something like market that. Market watch. I think, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Woohoo for, for Kai Rizdahl. David Jacconcia. BAQ 124, old Navy guy. Well, I throw that in there. Okay. <laughs> so, you are listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And you are listening to it on Missoula Community Radio. In the Missoula Valley, that is KFGM 105.5 FM from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m. on Saturdays and at other times. Uh, live streaming at the same time on 1055kfgm.org and on podcast on anchor.fm forward slash VOP hyphen Montana, all spelled out, or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. Um. Should I digress and ask about what's going on in the current news? Yeah, good. <laughs> Better. Yeah. What you got in mind, Mark? <laughs> what's in our current news next, Mark? Well, um, you know, despite 18 months of vaccines against COVID-19 being available in the U.S., the pandemic is still with us. According to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, the overall number of new daily daily COVID-19 cases in the U.S. is now rapidly rising at a rate of about 153,000 cases a day, but it's down from over 1.3 million per day on January 10th of this year, which was by far the highest rates for the U.S. during the entire pandemic. However, now many scientists 
and others questioned the validity and accuracy of the CDC's case numbers because of the prevalence of unreported home tests and because the general incompetency of the CDC. The highest per capita rates of COVID infection today are in Taiwan, Portugal, France, Australia, and New mm. Zealand, where apparently new variants of the COVID-19 virus is making the rounds. The U.S. is currently the lucky 13th on this list of per capita infections. According to a report by Andrew Joseph in the May 12th edition of the public health journal STAT, quote, people can become susceptible to infection again if their immunity wanes or if the virus mutates in ways that allow it to sneak past the body's defensive recognition systems. Experts analyzing current outbreak patterns think both factors could be at play. It seems that while protection against severe disease is holding up well, the ability to block an infection wanes in a matter of months. And while the first Omicron wave was driven by the BA.1 sublineage, the current spike in cases is largely BA.2 and increasingly a spinoff called BA.2.12.1. These variants are not only more efficient spreaders than BA.1, but they also look distinct enough from past forms of the virus that they can evade people's immunity and trigger infections, end quote. Ooh. Global health officials are also warning about the risk of curtailed surveillance efforts. Some of the systems that were built up to test for and sequence the virus have started to wind down uh, under the false notion that the pandemic is over, which scientists say leaves the world with a poorer understanding of how the virus is mutating and what threats those changes might pose. At over 1,140,000 deaths, which is actually an estimate um, from yeah. the CDC's numbers, which are low. Uh, the U.S. is still by far the world leader in COVID-19 deaths. This is equivalent to the population of the city of San Jose, California. The U.S. has so far accounted for 17% of all the deaths in the world, and even with the unreliable data, for 16% of the confirmed cases, all with still only 4% of the world's population. Oh, and for the second time on today's show... Yes. I will say, yeah. these are grim things to be exceptional at. Yeah, yes, they yeah. are. Go on, Mark. I love your segue into the prior topic by saying making the rounds. That was very <laughs> clever. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, so a, a stop clock is right twice a day, right? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm going to have to stop laughing. This is not funny. Uh, what's the situation now in Montana? Well, according to the state of Montana COVID-19 website and the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website, Montana has had 3,400 deaths from COVID-19, COVID up 19 people from two weeks ago. So that's about, about 10 people a week in Montana are dying from COVID still. This is about equal to that of the population of Glasgow, the 3,400 deaths. As of Friday, Montana is averaging a steady rate of about 154 new cases a day. Fully 25% of all Montanas have had or have COVID. And there are currently 41 people hospitalized with the virus, up 12 from two weeks ago. But it's still kind of under the the line of which it starts to crowd out other people in, from hospitals, right? Oh, that's, um, that matters. That's a really wonderful thing. Yeah. And so it's still under that, but it's uh, creeping upwards. 
We have been saying this since February 2020, and we'll keep saying it until the pandemic is completely beaten. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks when in public spaces indoors, to distance themselves from others as best you can, to frequently wash your hands, and to get the vaccine if we are going to beat this pandemic. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. Yeah, well, solidarity is a theme around here. Makes perfect sense. What's next in the news, Mark? Well, writing in the May 20th edition of the Montana Free Press, Montana's largest railroad company is making changes to a controversial new employee attendance policy after receiving pushback from railroaders and unions. But even with the changes, labor officials remain unimpressed and said uh, BNSF, uh, Burlington Northern Santa Fe, uh, railways new policies could lead to unsafe working conditions on the railroad. Railroaders already leave chaotic work lives. And I know this to be true. I know several engineers. Mm -hmm. uh, one day they might go to work at 9 a.m. and the next at 5 p.m. But BNSF employees allege that the company's new high-vis attendance policy made it even worse by penalizing them for taking time off for a family emergency, illness, or fatigue. Union officials say more than 700 railroaders have quit since the policy was implemented in February. Among those who walked was Brady uh, Wassam, a Columbia Falls man who came from a family of railroaders and worked for BNSF for eight years. Wassam told Montana Free Press last month, it felt offensive. I gave so much to this job and this new system made it seem like it wasn't enough, end quote. Union officials have called high viz the worst and most egregious attendance policy ever adopted by any rail carrier, which that, that's saying a lot. Um, yeah. And threatened to go on strike earlier this year until a federal judge stopped them because of the Railway Labor Act. But that ruling hasn't stopped railroaders from expressing frustrations with the policy. And last month, union members protested the policy at Berkshire Hathaway's annual meeting in Omaha. You know who owns Berkshire Hathaway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Oklahoma State. That's it. Uh, BNSF is wholly owned by Berkshire. Uh, Warren Buffett. That's his, mm -hmm. that's his deal. Uh, BNSF officials said they believe the revised system will help employees better manage their time off. Oh, my God. Uh, they, as, as if they need that help. And help the railroad achieve the staffing levels it, it needs to move freight. But union officials are not moved by the changes. Um, Dennis uh, said Dennis Pierce, national president of the Brother Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, BNSF Railway's new, newly uh, announced changes to its high-vis attendance policy are little more than fluff. High-vis has been an abject failure. This unreasonable policy that keeps locomotive engineers and other railroaders on call day after day around the clock has caused hundreds of BNSF employees to quit, and it has made recruitment of new employees a nightmare, end quote. Union officials said the railroad has brought its labor woes on itself by making deep staffing cuts to appease shareholders, meaning Mr. Buffett. Mm -hmm. According to the U.S. Surface Transportation Board, America's largest freight railroads have reduced their workforce by a combined 45,000 people, or 29% in the last six years. Oh, um, would it be asking too much if I mentioned it would be nice to have some good news? 
No, it's not too much. Um, I was going to say too about about uh, Burlington Northern. There, they are. Um, you know, in Montana, they're really the only rail shipper for farmers and ranchers mm -hmm. uh, for their product, and that's one of the biggest, uh, the biggest or second biggest industry in Montana. So, uh, there's been a long time a problem uh, with BN uh, about uh, captive market rates, which are higher than rates that other people send. So that devalues the value of Montana's crops and uh, uh, cattle. And, um, and so farmers make less money, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it really crunches when it's a, uh, a bad economy when, you know, uh, <clears throat> the prices are really low. Um, so, but on to the good news, we do have, <laughs> we do have some... <coughs> We have three different stories here that are um, that are good news, finally, right? So in, in the midst of all this bad news, um, because um, first, as regular listeners know, we have been closely covering the organizing efforts of the third wave workers of Missoula at Black Coffee Roasters. On May 26th, their efforts succeeded in a 92 victory for certification of their union. Five votes were not counted as they were challenged, so the union withdrew one of their challenges and so made the fight over the remaining challenge ballots a moot point, as they would not have changed the outcome. So congratulations for all their good work. Yes. Okay. Yay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we've covered this uh, in the past, and uh, for sure we've uh we're we're in their corner there's no doubt yeah so anything else mark well the next step for them um is bargaining a first collective uh bargaining agreement also known as the union contract they will need even more support from the public to get through this they are jubilant and determined to take the next step so we'll continue to report on this as their efforts continue. Okay. Yeah, that's, um, that's really a local good news story. Yeah. It makes well, me feel like good. Made a difference for them. Mm -hmm. Community involvement. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they, they have a, they do have a hard road to hoe because uh, uh, despite the fact that lots of union organizing attempts succeed on the election part or the recognition part it's the first contract that mm -hmm. um, more of them fail as a matter of fact so, oh no kidding so uh there's going to be a lot of support i'm going to be involved in some of that um as well putting together a uh, workshop on collective bargaining and mm -hmm. that uh, we're going to have all of their members go through so they know at least the basics of of doing that so well good for you that's great Okay. Yeah. Speaking of good news, you have another round you could uh, load in the chamber. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This. So. So. Yeah. This is. This is a dum dum bullet right here. Um, oh. <laughs> and because no hollow points. We're uh, we're looking at uh, uh, the um, we're looking at Starbucks here, right? So. Oh. Um, and then this is a this is the continuing expanding su success of Starbucks workers across the country. According to a May 24th report by Matt Brunig in Jacobin Magazine, 
Uh, quote, the first election filing in the Starbucks campaign came last August. A few more representation petitions were filed with the National Labor Relations Board in the next few months. But the number remained relatively small, 14 by the end of uh, 2021. But in January, union activity soared. Between January 1st and May 21st, the union filed 263 representation petitions around almost two a day. Wow, and workers, that is I, a lot. That is a lot. And workers have racked up a string of wins. The NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, has conducted 89 union elections so far at Starbucks, with the union prevailing in 77, which is 87% of those 89. Across all 89 elections, the Starbucks union has won 78% of votes cast. All told, there are currently 2,054 workers represented at the 77 stores that have voted for the Starbucks union. Those victories have been spread out geographically. The union's 77 wins have occurred across 54 different cities. Currently, the city with the most unionized Starbucks stores is Eugene, Oregon, with seven, followed by Portland, surprise, with four stores. Uh, end quote. And we will cover the efforts of the Butte, Montana Starbucks organizing drive as well as, we, uh, as they progress down the road. And uh, finally, as labor reporter Jonah Furman reports on May 23rd in his blog, Who Gets the Bird? Um, <laughs> I, I like the name of that. Um, he wrote, I don't know the end game here, but it no longer feels inconceivable that the Starbucks Workers United movement could grow to the scale and intensity needed to actually force the company to bargain nationally. I would expect a very, very active summer and fall from Starbucks Workers United, end quote. Uh. Well, I've got some anecdotal evidence that um, when the term national is used, that uh, Starbucks is not offended by nice working conditions in other places. My, my own daughter was an intern at Starbucks corporate and was responsible for, you know, day-to-day -day practices oh. in, in the, in the Netherlands and France hmm. and was shocked at the quality of life other people enjoyed and compared to her experiences working on the floor at Starbucks. Yeah. So, and, and in fall and a line. Yeah, well, that's Our, a good point, Jim, because in a lot of other countries in the world where there's Starbucks, there's, they're unionized like Chile. I was just reading an article about the Chilean um, unions and Starbucks, it's a hard fight for them, especially in Chile, the sort of the, the home of the Chicago boys form of neoliberalism. Um, <laughs> and, um, but, they, but they've been organized, uh, a lot of shops there have been organized for, for uh, almost a decade. So um, this is not anything strange to the Starbucks management. What's your yeah. daughter overseas? Oh yeah. It's she, in fact, um, she was so impressed by this quality of life there that she went and found herself an engineering job in the Netherlands and enjoyed that quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And we got the last story coming, Mark? Yeah, well, <clears throat> this is also a good news story, right? In oh, Montana, I love good news. A Montana story. Uh, the Daily Montanan reported on May 18th 
quote, the newsroom employees at the Bozeman Daily Chronicle have voted unanimously to certify the Yellowstone Newspaper Guild. It becomes the second daily newspaper in the state to form a union in the past three years. The oh. other one is at the Billings Gazette. Um, eight out of eight newsroom employees voted in the mail ballot election, which was administered by the National Labor Relations Board through its regional office in Seattle. Very similar to what happened with black coffee workers. Right. The ballots were sent out on April 25th and counted Tuesday. So two, two days ahead of the, um, uh, the black coffee workers. According to the Yellowstone Newspaper Guild, the Yellowstone News Guild will join the Denver Newspaper Guild Communication Workers of America Local, uh, boy, uh, 37074. That's a big number. Yeah, um, sure it's not a zip code. <laughs> yeah, it almost seems like it, doesn't it? Um, staff members at the Daily Chronicle said that two factors played a part in its unionizing efforts. A reduction of hours that originally started with the COVID-19 pandemic which have never been fully reversed, and the soaring cost of housing in the rapidly growing community. For example, mm. Realtor.com pegs Bozeman's median house price in April 2022. Are you, are you sitting down? Yeah. The, 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 <laughs> well, media, the median two out of house, three people are sitting down. <laughs> the median house price it means in the middle, there's half more expensive and half less expensive is $849,000 for a house in Bozeman. That's, that's just uh, like incredible. And the median condominium goes for $515,000. <laughs> yeah, that's, and, and, yeah, and as you say, as a median, um, that means there's a lot of activity in selling people homes that are ridiculous. Yes. And who are these people? And why are they going to Bose Angeles and not you know, Glasgow or, or Glendale or Missoula, right? Or Missoula. I think a lot well, of them are Mark. Yeah. Don't, don't give anyone any ideas. Uh, well, actually Bozeman's turning more progressive actually um, <clears throat> as time goes on. Mm-hmm. But anyway, no kidding. Yeah, oh yeah. Well, um, yeah. St- staff writer, Nora Shelley said daily Chronicle staffers are offered as little as $16 and 50 cents per hour to start in the newsroom. A, start, a starting wage that is often lower than those at fast food restaurants or even big box retailers. I think Shelley, babysitters make more than that. Yeah, and, and that's just completely untenable in Bozeman. Um, and, and because it's starting wage that is often lower than those at fast food restaurants or even big box retailers. Shelley said that reporters were generally happy with the local management, including the editor and the publisher, that felt like their concerns were not heard by the out-of-state management at Adams Publishing Group based in Minnesota. Yeah, starvation of the newsrooms is, is everywhere. It's been going on right. for at least, well, more than a decade. It's just been, it's the, it's just what they do. Yep. Right. Who wants the news? I, you know. Right. Well, and we, and, and what's, what's really critical here is that if we ha- were to have a functioning democracy, right, we need Absolutely. We need good news sources, right? And those folks need to be paid a good wage. I mean, that's a professional job and uh, our democracy depends upon them more than a lot of other professions. And exactly. uh, that they're being paid 16.50 an hour to start in a newsroom. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's just, you know, that's, 
not only anti-worker, but it's also anti-democratic too. Yeah. A lot of the people in journalism schools wind up going into uh, working in the media in the corporations. Right. You know, PR uh, jobs. So yeah, exactly. very good point. Actually being coming, you know, the whistleblowers that we need. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And hence the need for our show, too. I mean, if if we had <laughs> right. a, a thriving, you know, news media, we um, that, you know, didn't lie to us every other day. Um, you know, we we would be out of a job. Right. So. Well, even out I mean, of a job yeah. as volunteers, we could be out of a job. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. We had an interesting. Okay. Um, yeah, cut my pay, please. Time to, was it time to go? Anyhow, we had an interesting <laughs> event where they had just shut down the the um, state bureaus. You remember mm-hmm. about three or four sessions ago, and um, we were we brought the uh, a news station and the radio and, and NPR and Chuck Johnson to Missoula to talk about what was going on. And um, no kidding. At that time, we didn't know that they had shut down. They were shutting down his state office, mm-hmm. and the, the 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 news, the radio news said, "Oh, we depend on the state, um, the state, uh, you Euro. know, the state office of the of the newspapers." Right. And Chuck's sitting there, you know, and then the NPR says, "Oh, and we depend on them too." And then Chuck says, "Well, they're shutting us down." <laughs> so that's when, yeah, 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 drops yeah. my news deserts. Are, deserts food deserts right yeah and democracy deserts i think we're suffering here too yeah yeah um that's that's almost a show time safety deserts the craft of journalism is so crucial to what's going on yeah so as our theme here we definitely promote the cause of democratic unions besides the third wave workers of missoula at black coffee roasters uh, there are efforts to do more union organizing in Western Montana, among other coffee and service industry workers as well. Is that true, Mark? That's yeah, absolutely true. And um, absolutely true. And anyone, any worker from Starbucks or any other workplace for that matter, who's mm-hmm. interested in organizing, you can find support and practical help by calling or emailing the Western Montana Workers Alliance. Yay! <laughs> there are experienced and trained volunteers to help you get going. You can contact the Western Montana Workers Alliance at, um, I'm going to spell out the email address. It's westernmtwa at gmail.com. That's W-E-S-T-E-R-N-M-T-W-A at gmail.com. Or by leaving a message at 406-924-3830. That's 406-924-3830. And important work thanks for yeah that. yeah and we can maybe uh amplify what looks like that starbucks is really going to become it's it's interesting now but it really is not a force to be reckoned with and and until they multiply by you know 10 or 100 or more that's what our aim is to be so not only just starbucks but any small working place so well i am so pleased today to uh, have uh, David Van Dusen, uh, who's president of the Vermont State Labor Council, AFL-CIO, join us today on Voice of the People. And uh, uh, there's been lots of really interesting things going on in Vermont in terms of organized labor and the program of trying to build uh, worker power. And, uh, and so I uh, saw a, a YouTube interview uh, 
with David and uh, was inspired to give him a call. And he's so kindly agreed to be interviewed. So welcome to Voice of the People, David. Pleasure to be here, Mark. Great. And so could you tell us something about yourself? As you mentioned, I'm president of the Vermont AFL-CIO. I'm a member of AFSME Local 2413 of the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Uh, like many union folks, I've been involved with unions essentially my whole life. My father was a, a union member, an officer in his local. And uh, I'm doing my best, like most of us are, to try to fight for a better world for working people. So that's what it's all about. Great. Great. And <clears throat> AFSME is... Spell that out. Some, some of our listeners don't know what AFSCME might stand for. American Federation of uh, State, County, and Municipal Employees. All right. Thank you. And so, as I mentioned, um, you, uh, when, when were you elected in, into office or your, um, your, your officers, uh, mm -hmm. including yourself? Well, in, uh, this is my second term I'm serving right now. Uh, I'm part of a progressive slate here in Vermont within the unions called United. We swept elections in 2019, in 2020, and just this past year as well. So uh, we're, we're the great majority of our executive board, uh, as well as the executive committee, all the executive committee are from uh, United. And our program, for those who are interested, is a 10-point program for union power, also called the Little Green Book. Uh, can be found on our website, the Vermont AFL-CIO website. If you click about us and you will see the vision that we are seeking to carry out to create a more member-driven, a more militant, and a more effective labor movement here in Vermont and beyond. That's great. And as uh, listeners to our show knows, that's exactly our uh, approach as well. Um, so that's really exciting. In fact, I think we have shared your 10-point um, program on the air uh, and certainly with other labor leaders uh, in the past. So what, um, if you could summarize um, a little bit more detail what um, that 10-point program, that vision for worker power is. Well, look, one thing is clear that from the 1950s today, uh, union density in the United States of America has gone down. And in many regards, if we're gonna be truthful about our starting point, organized labor in the United States is not as strong as it has been at different times in our history. So we very firmly believe that if we keep repeating the mistakes that we've done in the last five years, 10 years, and the decades before, we're not gonna grow our power. So we believe we need to get back to our roots. We, can be, we must be unafraid of using the strike, our strongest tool in fighting and get back against the capitalist class. And we also need to democratize, uh, not just society as such, and fight for more democracy in, in our communities, which we do, but also within the labor movement itself. Uh, the truth is, uh, we're not nearly as democratic as we should be. And if we're going to be asking our members to get more active and more militant and more involved, we also have to cultivate a sense of ownership uh, among the rank and file concerning the labor movement. So we very strongly feel that we need to take concrete steps to increase democracy. Here in Vermont, we've done a number of things. We've more than doubled the amount of delegates that are afforded to uh, locals, affiliated locals for our conventions. Uh, that of course is the highest ranking decision-making body of our organization. We've also um, raised the threshold, making it harder to go to weighted voting, 
right? And that might be getting into the weeds for some of your members. But at conventions, we believe that we're stronger when we have a participatory democracy, right? And we want members to go to the convention and debate, not have one delegate carry a vote for a thousand members and call that democracy. That's a sham. So we've made that change too. And we've also sent a resolution to the national AFL-CIO for consideration at this year's national convention, demanding that we directly elect our officers. Right now it's weighted voting and delegates who are electing national officers on behalf of millions and millions of rank and file members. We wanna go in the same direction that UAW went in recent years where every single member gets to cast a ballot to decide the future and the leadership of our organization. Now, that's part of what our 10-point program is about. Uh, we also very much feel that we need to embrace social justice unionism from a working class perspective in order to build ties and connections to community groups, right, our natural allies. And it's through working with community groups and allies in the fight against racism, in the fight against um, austerity, uh, beyond just our shop floor battles, that we're gonna build the critical mass of power needed to fundamentally change society. When we're hunkered down in our very specific union silos, and if all we're looking at is trying to get that extra 50 cents an hour and hold the line on healthcare, we might win our individual fights, but we're not gonna win the war. We have to go beyond that. We have to do a good job at those bread and butter things. Don't get me wrong, that is crucial. But we gotta go beyond that and fight generally in society on behalf of the working class as such. Yeah, it seems to me that, I mean, those are really sensible ideas and you've gotten pushback from that, no doubt, um, over time um, and uh, in, maybe in various different ways, but it, to me, that seems pretty commonsensical. Is there, uh, you know, the idea of, 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 of members owning the union, right? In fact, that's that's how we train our organizers, right? He says, don't third party the union, right? You, you Because the members are the union and yet we often don't put that into practice. Well, look, we have to start getting in the habit of walking the talk. And as a labor movement, if we're gonna talk about things like democracy in our country, we have to start practicing that kind of democracy as participatory as possible, as direct as possible within our own ranks. Now, I'll tell you what, I mean, how many people are gonna be at the National AFL-CI Convention? It'll be thousands, sure, but we represent millions and millions of workers. So if we don't find those avenues where rank and file regular members can stand up, say their piece, argue their point, make a motion, try to get something changed, right? And involved and actually vote on whether or not we're going to the picket lines or we're gonna have a strike or a general strike or be engaged in a political action, Right. If they're not the ones making the decision, why do we think they're going to be there when it matters? Mm -hmm. now, right now, much of the labor movement will issue endorsements without engaging the rank and file political endorsements. And typically they're for shitty Democrats, like let's call a spade a spade here. And then we're, we act shocked when we find out that maybe 60 percent of our members actually voted for the candidate that was endorsed. But our members weren't in typically. Right. On a big scale, our members typically were not engaged or engaged enough in that decision to begin with. So here in Vermont, where we have uh, more authority and direct control over what we choose to do or not do, we have gone out of our way and tried to take as many concrete steps as possible to ask the rank and file their opinions on the issues of the day and make sure 
that were walking together on the same path at the same time with buy-in from the great uh, many of our members. And that practice, I mean, there's a lot of observers over the years have said that uh, one of the really strong things, salutary things about unions is that that's where a lot of people can learn the, the practices of democracy, right? And, and self-rule. And, but it's been, you know, the, it's been denied or it's been sort of tamped down and, and kind of made, as you say, uh, less of a, less of a democracy and more of kind of, uh, well, in some bad examples, right? Uh, you get, you get uh, really uh, bad union leaders sort of making decisions for the bulk of the body and, and rejecting uh, any sense of like uh, the idea of ownership um, by the rank and file. I, I agree. So we made a very big decision uh, it shouldn't have been controversial, but it was in some uh, circles. In 2020, within days or after the election, where Joe Biden, by any measure, won the election, and Trump refused to concede, uh, our executive board, board felt very strongly that uh, we needed to start to prepare for a general strike in Vermont if uh, Trump did not uh, leave office, if he did not, if there was not a peaceful transfer of power on January uh, 20th. We could have made that decision as an executive board. We could have had 19 people make that decision and put out a statement saying, we're prepared to call for a general strike. But here's the thing. If you don't involve the members on something that huge, right? Do you think that you're maximizing uh, ownership and a feeling that this is their decision? And, and that would be crucial in such a crisis type situ situation where democracy is facing an existential crisis. So instead of making a unilateral statement, we brought the discussion and a strike authorization vote to our convention. And we had, um, you know, it was one of our largest conventions we've had in decades, you know. We've had our members debate the issue for an hour, make amendments, make changes with the strike authorization resolution as they saw fit. And we talked until there wasn't questions anymore, until there wasn't debate anymore, until our members debated it to the point where they were ready to take a vote. And when we did take that vote, 87% of our delegates voted to authorize us as their elected leaders to, to call for a general strike if there was not a peaceful transfer of power. I'm very proud of our members for making that decision. But again, uh, these decisions that are so huge, so historic, and, and we can multiply this out on the national scale, there should be a place, a serious place for the rank and file to be debating those issues before us and voting on what our stance will be. Because when the, shit go, when the, when the trouble comes, right, when the crisis happens, we need our members there ready to do what needs to be done to advance, uh, to advance the interests of working people be it in Vermont, be it in Montana, be it in the United States of America. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well said. Um, yeah, as a longtime organizer myself, um, organizing is about asking people to do a hard thing. But if you haven't built up a relationship of trust where even, you know, a, 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 or even like serious familiarity, um, it, you can't ask that hard question that people... We'll go, well, uh, you know, it sounds good in theory, but 
I'm, I'm curious what the response from the national AFL was to your resolution. The general strike authorization vote? Yes, yes, sorry. The former administration in Washington, D.C. under um, Richard Trumka uh, was viscerally opposed to the stance that we took. And we faced months of retaliation from Richard Trumka's administration. And we were at risk of being frankly placed under trusteeship at that time. Uh, we made the decision as a, a labor council uh, to publicly fight back and publicly say, look, not only uh, should we not suffer retaliation, but we would do the same damn thing again, right? So we believe in democracy in Vermont. We have a long tradition of town meeting-based democracy going back before the American Revolution, going back uh, into 1770s and, and before that with town meetings and, and direct democracies. We take our democracy seriously. And if there is a threat from any individual or any party to, to end democracy in our nation, in our republic, then, you know, I'm sorry if we ruffle some feathers and I'm sorry if you would rather, you know, sit in a room with some Democratic Party lawyers to try to think about how to save the republic. But for us, the way we said we were going to do our part was we were going to withhold our labor. And in a consumer-driven capitalist economy that we have, if workers put down their tools, if workers stand together on the barricades, on the picket lines, and say enough is enough, the entire society stops. And that's where our power is. And we can't be afraid to use our powers. We're not going to be build power by sending some lawyers and suits and ties and lobbyists to Washington, D.C. We're not going to be building power by throwing millions, tens of millions of dollars at half-assed candidates, right, from a party that only sometimes supports us. We're going to build power when we, as workers, as unions, recognize that society only function because of our labor. And if we choose to withhold our labor, it's us that now has the power. Yeah, yeah. So you are, uh, well, the... Um, Council, I'm not sure how you uh, came up with the proposal, but it's coming from the Vermont um, State Labor Council to the National AFL Convention, uh, which is uh, next month, I believe, uh, in, in, in Philadelphia. And um, your you have a couple pr proposals. Uh, one, I think you you mentioned about the direct election of of uh, uh, leadership um, within the AFL. And the other, um, or one of the other ones is the, um, the idea of a general strike. Um, talk about a little bit about the general uh, strike resolution. Well, again, this comes out of the genesis of our own experience here in Vermont. And we didn't just pass that resolution. We took concrete steps to prepare in case we had to call for the general strike. And I think the closest we came to that danger point was on January during the insurrection in Washington, D.C. in January. But uh, we are pleased that there was a transfer of power. We are pleased that uh, there was not a coup that was successfully carried out in this country. And although Richard Trump and the former administration did not like it, uh, we fought back publicly. And ultimately, uh, we made it clear that we weren't going to back down and there was a political price to be paid if uh, he continued down that road of retaliation and he backed away. But now we have a new administration in the National AFL-CIO. Mm -hmm. A new day, a new convention. 
So our uh, executive board adopted a resolution that would set the national AFL-CIO in the direction of planning for a general strike if there was another, a new crisis in democracy coming out of the 2024 election. Given how concerned uh, both generals and the CIA and many top uh, political figures in this country were about the possibility of a fascist coup in 2020, uh, given that our own senator, you may have heard of him, Bernie Sanders, uh, <laughs> was sounding the alarm early on, mm -hmm. uh, we feel that it, the only responsible thing to do is to recognize that we're not out of the woods yet. This can happen again. In fact, it may be more likely now than it has been in any past time in our history. But you don't just snap your fingers and all of a sudden there's a general strike. Mm -hmm. Serious organizing that takes serious hard work. And we want to start that process now. And we're asking the National AFL CIO to support this resolution, set us down the course for preparing for such a thing if it becomes necessary, and task our national leaders with doing the legwork uh, needed to make sure we're prepared for such if we have to be in 2024. I, I can't think of a more appropriate body in which to bring that up to as the national AFL-CIO in this country. Um, what do you, do you have support of other delegates or what, what's your, um, what do you expect going into uh, the convention hall in Philadelphia? The fate of our resolutions is unwritten. Uh, it's not clear to me at this point uh, how that's gonna play out at the convention. But I do expect to have support from uh, a number of different uh, delegates or groups from the West Coast and other progressive elements uh, that will be represented at the convention. Uh, we're ready to make our case. We want to have a free and fair debate. We want to be able to talk about this and have an honest discussion on it beyond talking points and, and trying to make uh, political points, right? We really want to get into it. Uh, we're optimistic that the new administration under President Schuller will uh, support such a robust debate, regardless of what their opinions may or may not be on the resolutions. And, 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 let's, and let's talk about it. But if we don't talk about it, we don't wanna lurch from one crisis to another and just we either muddle through or somehow figure something out in the 11th hour. That's not the way to build power. We need to be meticulous, we need to be smart, and we need to start now in order to plan for uh, what is likely or what is at least possible in a few short years. Yeah, yeah. And this also kind of reintroduces the idea of general strike, right? This is something that other labor federations around the world use quite frequently. And um, I know a little bit about um, Chile and, uh, and <clears throat> but this is something that's not used in this country and I, much to the detriment of working class power. Well, they should be. Now, now let's, let's be honest, right? The political strikes, and that's what a general strike would be, mm -hmm. are illegal in the United States. But you know what? Or coups, right? Coups are illegal too. And sometimes you need to fight fire with whatever you got by any means necessary if we're going to merge out of it a free people. Right. We did see general strikes regionally in this country. I believe the last one was in the 1930s. So it's not like we don't have some historic base for this. Mm -hmm. Too long, our leaderships uh, in our internationals and in the AFL-CIO 
they, they become too cozy with, with the power brokers in Washington, D.C. They become too cozy with the notion of deferring our chances of victory or defeat on any given issue to the National Labor Relations Board. Now, let's remember back to a time before the New Deal when labor unions essentially had no rights in this country. And how did we get those rights? We went on strike. We illegally went on strike. We took over factories, right? There was fighting in the streets. There were thousands of people marching. Those were working people, regular old working people. And the powers that be, they changed, they changed the rules because they feared us. They didn't change the rules through the New Deal because they liked us. F, I think, was the greatest president uh, we've ever had as a country. Uh, so I'm not looking to take anything away from him, but he didn't just snap his fingers and we had the New Deal and, and labor laws. Right. Those came out of fear. And the alternative was if, if fundamental change did not take place in society, there was a chance that there, there was a growing chance that there'd be a working class revolution. Mm -hmm. But without the fear factor, without uh, giving the politicians, both Republican and Democrat, without giving them something to be concerned about, a moment to pause, they do not have the motivation needed to represent our interests. They will follow and they will make change, but only when we grow that power, right? And, rape, uh, and do more than just rattle a saber. Right in order to motivate them. Right. And <clears throat> it's really about uh, winning, right? I mean, winning uh, a, a better country. I mean, look, I mean, it's not, it's not a stretch to say that lots of things are falling apart, especially people's uh, sort of idealized notion of how this country actually runs. And, um, and that, you know, uh, you know, ordinary people have you know, a lot of influence over Congress. Well, I mean, essentially, I think you could make the argument we're run by oligarchs and um, it's the wealthy that get their way in, in our political system. And yeah, you're absolutely right. And yep. everyone, everyone else take the, take the hindmost. So it's about building power. I think there's a, a there's a really um, integral connection between what you were talking about union democracy and building the ownership of the rank and file of the union and building building enough power and, and building enough capacity to actually potentially run a general strike right i mean i i, I don't think the the two are of of a of a piece right i, I would refer to it as dependent arising it, yeah. It's many different factors all at once for us to arrive where we need to arrive. Right. And, and it's not just um, it's not just those 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 points that you bring up. It's also a matter of priorities. So while right now we're spending the National AFL-CIO countless, countless dollars on on lobbying and on political elections, which, you know, we got to we got to call a spade a spade. What do we get for these elections? It's not the PRO Act. That didn't happen. It's not safeguarding our, our democratic process through a voter rights act. That's not happening. It's not build back better, right? It, it's none of these things. Yet we've invested a huge portion of our resources into these failing bids to prop up a party that doesn't support us. That doesn't mean that I support the Republicans. I don't. They tend to be against us as, as well. But if we were to take a significant uh, uh, fraction of those resources, of that money, and put them into organizing and send real organizers to all 50 states from the National AFL-CIO 
to support internal organizing of the units that we already have in the labor movement and new organizing, right, through our internationals that are active in each state. Uh, that is a way that we start to build the kind of power that we need to do. And then we also have to think about things like train the trainer, because ultimately you don't want to have just professional organizers uh, out there in the trenches. You want to train the stewards. You want to train the rank and file. You want to get people to the point where they're comfortable taking action, right? And they know take action effectively. But in order to get there, we need to redirect resources. We need to rethink what we're doing. And we can't say, Oh, 2024 is the most important election of our lifetime. Oh, 2022 is. And, and so we got to put everything there because you know what? We've done that. We've, we had the Democrats in charge with Obama in the presidency, right? In, in uh, the House and the, the Senate. And we couldn't even get the Employee Free Choice Act, right? We got no foundational change out of the administration. Now we have Joe Biden, same situation. Where's our foundational change? There is none. Their campaign promises, they're hollow, they're nowhere. And, and you know what, if we're gonna talk about electoral politics, we need to start, start talking about a real working class third party in this country. Yeah, and that's, that, that's a topic for another show, I'm afraid, but <laughs> um, yeah, uh, well said. Um, and you know, the, the other thing that you mentioned too, um, just wanted to bring this in, and um, uh, it, it sounds very similar to what we've talked about, and, and I'm quite involved with um, getting people trained as organizers through kind of through the what I've been taking uh, calling the CIO method, right, which is being popularized by Jane McAlevey, and um, and uh, and having uh, you know looking at things in terms of exactly how you're saying it and expanding the idea of uh, even uh, unions connection with the community and uh, the you know the idea that uh, you know workers have all these connections with the community and in, in different associations and interests and whatnot um, one thing that I'm really afraid of uh, and, and has happened is happening in Montana and other places is that um, because the labor movement is is really focused on its own like parochial interests, which are important, right? And wages, hours and working conditions are- But the, they're not the, mutually exclusive. Right, exactly. That's kind of what I'm getting to is that, uh, you know, uh, would, uh, you know, the, the Keystone XL pipeline is a very controversial uh, thing. And when I was a union organizer, our, our uh, local could have, um, you know, we're hospitality workers, but the camp uh, workers would have, you know, could have been in our union and they started, you know, the, the average pay starts at $20 an hour, which was way beyond anything that any of my members had at the time. And, and so it, it looks very appealing, but, you know, at the same time, we're dealing with a climate crisis and, uh, and, and labor has not shined real well in working with the community on issues like that too. Well, look, that's something that we struggle with uh, or are engaged in here in Vermont. And I can't speak to the decision-making process at the national level, but I could speak to what we go through. And now keep in mind to your listeners in Montana, we're, your state is larger and has a larger population, but in some ways we're probably not that far apart. Vermont is a rural uh, population. It's uh, certainly not nearly as diverse as most of the country. I think the only other 
state that's less diverse than us is um, uh, Maine, right? Or Montana, maybe. <laughs> no, no, I think you got us beat there. Oh, okay. So we're an aging rural population. We're pretty much mountains and forests. That's what we are. We have one city of 40,000 people, which is Burlington, right? So, uh, but we also have, uh, like you do, thousands of union members. And we are basically working class people and small farmers. And here, we recognize that we want to give our kids, right? They need to have clean air. They need to have clean water. Uh, we don't want to see our maple industry decimated because of climate change. It gets too warm. That's the type of thing that happens. Uh, so we recognize this as a labor issue. So what we've set out to do here, and it's again part of our 10-point program, is we actively support building a union-led Green New Deal. But here's what we don't support. We can't get there through uh, so-called market solutions. We can't get there through regressive taxation. And in no case can we build a new, more green, more sustainable society on the backs of working people, right? We can't do that. So even while we've joined uh, a group, a regional group called Renew New England, we were a charter member of that for Vermont, which is essentially working towards a regionalized Green New Deal. We also have been very, very clear with the politicians that we absolutely oppose various schemes that come up, which are regressive and where our members would pay for. We help defeat regionally uh, the Transportation Climate Initiative, which would have driven up the gas prices regressively for folks that are commuting to work. And we said, you know what? Our members already pay too much to get to work. It's time to tax the wealthy. It's time to tax the corporations. They're the ones that cause these problems through the through the policies that they've seen through, through their political and economic muscle, let's make them pay for it, not the guy who's driving to work as a carpenter making 20 bucks an hour in a beat up old truck, right? We already pay enough. And we're also, we're happy to just defeat um, the governor vetoed this bill uh, and then it failed to go through the override in Vermont, something called the clean heat standard, which would have forced working class families to either come up with $10,000, $15,000 for a new heating system if they're say heating with oil, um, or they would have suffered increased uh, home heating fuel costs. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm certainly no millionaire or billionaire. And the last month of our winter, I just spent $1,000 in oil for one month. So don't tell me that we, we're going to make you pay $1,500 a month for oil, and then we're going to solve all the problems that the capitalists created. No, mm -hmm. it's for them to pay for their problems. So we do need to have a rational, sustainable green outlook when it comes to organized labor. And those create jobs, by the way, right? Installing solar panels, building wind farms. Those are good union jobs or should be good union jobs. But we can't be getting there. We can't be getting from A to B with this BS, liberal, um, and I'm using that in derogatory word, word aggressive um, methodology, which ultimately means working people are going to pay more just to get by in life. Yeah. So that's what we need to strike. Yeah. <clears throat> and here, um, you know, natural resource industry lot. I mean, it's it's been huge in Montana, although it's a lot less now. I mean, tour, tourism has really uh, become probably the number one, you know, industry, as it were, with agriculture being a close second. Um, and it's important. Um, I found over my over the years, I've, I've gotten, you know, uh, my fair amount of crap from uh people who think working with the Sierra Club is like uh, betraying the labor movement. But I, I point out to people saying that, look, um, that doesn't mean that these issues are going away. 
And, uh, and it also that we need to be at the table as labor uh, to help inform kind of the more liberal, as you say, environmentalists, uh, sometimes they come up with, uh, they're, they're not uh, class-based in their analysis of things. And so they'll come up with stuff that just saddle working people with all kinds yeah. of stuff. And, and that actually makes people like Trump more appealing, I think. It does, because if we don't have a true left-wing, uh, working class left-wing poll, when people get fed up with liberal politics, the Democratic Party, that's when they're more apt to turn to the far right as an alternative. So we have to be something very different from the Democrats. We have to be a left-wing working class poll. And we have to have solutions that benefit you know, society as a whole, but our members and working class people directly. And it's funny you should bring up the Sierra Club. You know, dialogue is an important thing. So early on when there was this transportation uh, climate initiative, which was terrible and regressive, most of the environmental groups uh, lined up, most, not all, uh, behind it. We had dialogue with the Vermont Sierra Club. And by the end of that process, out of respect for our concerns and out of a respect for the class-based analysis we provided, they chose to stay neutral on it, right? And that was a contributing factor, I believe, why it did not get the momentum it needed to, to ultimately become law. And in return, though, I mean, it's a two-way street. Solidarity needs to be a two-way street. You know, we are also active on environmental issues. Our brothers and sisters in the building trades helped push through a bill this year in our state house where uh, additional monies would go to uh, insulating homes, right? Subsidies and things like this. But attached to that bill was that uh, prevailing wage had to be paid for the folks that are doing that insulation. Because it's not just about insulating the homes. It's not just about creating a minimum wage job. Mm -hmm. It's a good family sustaining jobs while we transition to a more environmentally uh, sustainable future. And in that case, one of our union uh, groups from local 1369, who does insulation of, if, for a low income uh, housing and whatnot, they're slated to get a $10,000 raise this year because of that. So working on environmental issues has an economic impact or it should when it's done right. And if we could come, if we could work collaboratively and it's gonna be hard at times, with environmental groups, as we do here, like the 350 Vermont or Rights and Democracy, when we do it and we do it well and we get on the same page, we amplify each other's power and we make it so real change, fundamental change, economic change and environmental change, the type that working people would want to see, right? The type that hunters would want to see. Those things become more possible as opposed to less. Yeah. Well, very well said. And we've Come to the end of our time, but very much uh, enjoyed talking with you, uh, David Van Dusen, of uh, president of the Vermont State uh, Labor Council, AFL-CIO, and really appreciate. Uh, maybe give you another call sometime, and um, when when uh, maybe after the convention or sometime down the down the road. Always happy to talk to you, Mark. Solidarity. All right, solidarity.
Democracy is coming to the USA.